The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Last week we began talking about the Venice Biennale and this week we'll take a look at another biennial, the one in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. The artist Shazad Dawood is showing a new virtual reality work in the biennial and he'll be telling us all about it later. But first, celebrity auctions. After the David Bowie collection prompted an avalanche of visitors to Sotheby's in London in 2016, another pop star's collection is now drawing similarly huge crowds to Christie's, the collection of George Michael, the singer-songwriter and former leader of the band Wham, who died, of course, on Christmas Day in 2016. In a short period in the 2000s, Michael amassed a huge collection of contemporary art with his then-partner Kenny Goss, and more than 150 lots are in two sales this week, 61 lots in an evening sale at Christie's and the rest in an online sale. We'll hear what happened at the auction directly from the salesroom in a moment, but before that I spoke to Paola Saracino-Fendi, a specialist in post-war and contemporary art at Christie's, about the collection. Paola... George Michael's from an era when there were quite a lot of pop stars who quite had quite an arty identity. Actually, George was much more of a kind of poppy pop star in his early years. But when did he develop this interest in art? Well, the collection starts towards the early 2000s. And I think that's when he started having more of a relationship with the YBA artists who in the 90s kind of broke the mold for art history. And I think he felt this connection between them as kind of rebels and poets of their time. And I think as well, that's why in the early 2000s, after kind of creating these relationships, he decided to really start collecting and having them within his various homes. Now, it's called the George Michael Collection, but the but Kenny Goss is a hugely influential figure. This is George Michael's partner. To what extent was he an influence on George's interest in art? Well, when they were together, they very much had these relationships with the artists together. Kenny Goss introduced him to many of the artists, uh, and it was very much a collaboration with both of them when collecting these works and then showing it within the foundation, which is the Goss-Michael Foundation. So it was very much a partnership, and I think when you speak to the artists, they... Uh, remember it fondly and they remember both of them as kind of equal partners when creating this collection. One of the things that's interesting to me is that is that the collection was assembled in a very short period. Um, I, I noted that in the evening sale there are 27 works of the 61 works that were acquired in, in 2007 alone. What accounts for that sort of uh, pace of collecting? I think, you know, when we were speaking with the various galleries and artists, um, you know, George Michael would come and just kind of fall in love with a certain exhibition, and some works would have been either purchased right then and there. Uh, others might have been alongside gifts from the artists as a thank you. Uh, I think because of that, it seems as if it seems as if he bought everything all at the same time but it was all various conversations it could have been different shows in different years and then of course because of these kind of close relationships he was able to kind of as well get really great gifts from you know the likes of Tracy Emin and Michael Craig Martin. 
Tracy Emin seems to have been the sort of linchpin of all this. The, yes. like his closest friends and friend amongst the group. Is is that the case? Yes. Um, in the collection, there's 14 works by Tracy. So very much kind of the most collected artist within the collection and so this is because she was the first he created a relationship with and was very much after in finding a true friendship and because of that the relationship that they had together she introduced him to the other YBAs and that's how he kind of expanded the collection so yes it's she was kind of the nucleus and then everything grew from there. I mean, a lot of these works are, are, are quite large. Some of them are quite difficult to install, particularly those works by Damien Hirst in Formaldehyde, for instance. Um, it's Some of it almost seems like institutional collecting. And there was this foundation, the the, um, the Goss Michael Foundation, that was set up. So were they, in a, in a way, buying for that institution as opposed to for their personal spaces? I think each artwork... I don't think a size mattered to George. I think it was more of... Um, he prided that each work was kind kind of the best of each artist. And if you look at that, these are examples of the artists that I consider the best of each one. Uh, I think he was fearless when it was coming to collecting, so I don't think size mattered. Um, these did fit in within his homes, uh, especially when he lived in Los Angeles. And... Um, I wouldn't look at the size, but just more of that, yes, he wanted the best of each artist, and this is what these works are. What do you think it was that he responded to in the artist's works? There are sort of common themes that link those artists' works. Obviously, that's partly because they were part of the same generation and therefore shared common themes anyway. But but there are sort of certain things, particularly of a sexual nature, for instance, between certain artists. Well, the... The link that I see the most as well with Tracy is that they are both poets. Um, I think a lot of these artworks kind of show as if they were titled or have this lyrical melodic quality that you see within as if there were lyrics in George Michael's songs. I think all of the artworks also tend to a different mood the same way that the songs of George Michael would attend to any of our moods. And I think that's why... You know, they were they shared this love and artistry with all the artists, and I think the collection reflects it in that way. Do you think there was a kinship between the artists and George because also at the time that he's buying, they had become celebrities in the sense that Tracy Emin and Damien Hirst were not just on the arts pages, they were in the gossip columns, they were on the front pages. They were they were pe- they were household names in their own right. Do you think there was a sort of kinship in that sense? The thing is, when you talk to the artists about the relationship with George Michael, it they really there's a vulnerability the way that they speak about him, and I think it's a much more human connection rather than anything of a glossy magazine page type of way. I think they truly were friends, and I think people like Tracy and and George were um, you can kind of go up to and talk to and have a a quite honest chat with and I think that's kind of the relationship they had with each other I wouldn't I wouldn't consider that this is a collection made because they were just at the top of the charts in a a certain way of saying um, during the art market but I think it's truly that he found a kinship and a relationship that was beyond that 
the works required from galleries but also from auctions of different kinds it's clear that to me that one of the ways that these artists and and George are linked is through their work for AIDS charities can you tell us something about that because Tracy Emin is deeply involved with the Terence Higgins Trust for instance and George is obviously was obviously a big campaigner for AIDS charities I think what's so special about this auction and this collection coming out in life is that you see that George Michael was a true philanthropist and was quite anonymous about it. He really did not want that to be known or shared. And the works that he did purchase in auction were all for charity. And I think it was his way of giving back. And it was just out of his personality. So because of his relationship with Tracy, because he was such a huge philanthropist and I think this is just why it makes it clear that he would purchase some of these works through these auctions. It's interesting, though, that he did take part in in auctions in that sense. In, you know, that's a, that's quite a public way to engage with with um, art. And I noticed that that he acquired one of the works in the collection at that very famous or infamous uh, Damien Hirst sale at Sotheby's in two thousand eight, just as the as the global crash was. Uh, happening, so um, I think that's quite an interesting aspect of this, isn't it? That you know, as part of this whirlwind of collecting, he was buying at auction and, and uh, trying to acquire works that he he was desperate for. It seems. I think as well, he was supportive of his peers of the works that he collected as well, and um, I think the way that I heard that he would collect is that if he liked something and he felt that it had to be his he would just purchase it um so i think yeah if he was after work whether it be an auction but for the most part it was via gallery or via the artist themselves um he would definitely go after that can you tell us how he worked with artists because obviously there is the commissioned portrait of him by michael craig martin which is the one of those lcd screens mm-hmm. which where you have these constantly evolving colors in michael craig martin's very inimitable style um did he do much commissioning george michael or did he largely buy existing works um he did not do much commissioning i think it was more of gifts so kind of a, a way of giving back so speaking to Michael Craig Martin that work was you know he has three other works that are fantastic paintings um, and I think because of that close relationship it's really the artists that have the idea to um, kind of approach them and being like we want to you know gift you this work that we feel as a thank you for being part of such a great and um, really well-named collection. Um, can you tell us what happens now? Because obviously you, you're raising the funds, but it's a charity auction. Yes. How does that work from Christie's point of view? You've done a world tour for the, for this collection. Uh, it must be quite an expensive endeavour for you. But so how how does it work for Christie's? Do you reduce your fees if it's a charity auction? Um, how, I'm, I'm sure that lots of our listeners will want to know how charity auctions work. Yes. Um, you know, for us, it's much more of giving back and um, helping the charities. We we definitely take off fees because of that um we you know decided because of the the type of collection it is and and our dedication to to really doing this right is we wanted to share it with the worldwide kind of a global audience and because of that we have so many people kind of coming through the doors and have seen it around the world and 
with that in mind, you know, that creates more bids and more action to give back to the charity. And all of the funds are going back to the charitable projects that either have already seen money from George Michael when he was still alive and future endeavors that um, the family wishes to to continue on um, but he was very anonymous about it which is why the foundation wishes to stay anonymous um, and you know they do want to continue on this legacy of philanthropy is there any of george michael's collection that remains intact and isn't on sale as part of this auction i.e is there some of his holdings which remain remain in the in the hands of the family or or, or with kenny goss or Most of it is in the, I would say, like 99%, you know, maybe um, one or two things that the family decided to keep as out of memory of him and, you know, something small that reminds them of him. Um, This goes as well for the memorabilia. Um, A lot of people were asking why we didn't have, you know, certain items up, but I think it's because he was such a personal and private person that the sisters and those who knew him want to continue that way does the fact that these works have been owned by george michael mean that they will attract higher bids than the say if similar works but owned by a more anonymous collector when we estimated each work we had that in mind but as well because it's for charity a lot of the for the most part the estimates are lower than what they would be in the current market because we want to raise as much funds as possible for the charity and to live on his name. Of course, with any type of kind of grand, you know, you saw this with the Rockefeller collection, um, you know, even the plates sold for £100,000. And I think, of course, a name always creates excitement, but at the same time, it does open it up to an audience that is outside the art world or outside the usual client base of Christie's. I think you have people that are now getting involved in bidding and buying works that because they were fans of George Michael and are really thinking of him and thinking of this icon and his legacy rather than who is the work by or what is the market for this artist or who is their gallery. So I think that's what makes this whole venture so exciting and thrilling. And Thursday night is going to be... A really fantastic evening. Okay, well, thank you very much, Paula. Well, thank you so much. Lovely speaking to you. So, you now join me standing outside Christie's after the sale. Uh, the George Michael sale has just happened, and I'm here with Annie Shaw, who's a London based correspondent for the art newspaper. Annie, what happened in the sale? Well, it was a white glove sale here tonight at Christie's, meaning all uh, lots sold, all 61 lots sold. There was a a McEwen piece that was re-offered at the end um, to make sure that all lots were sold um, in the name of charity, of course. Um, I describe it probably as a sale of two halves. There was it was a winning night for Tracy Emin. It was really the Tracy and George Michael show. Um, Nine of her works on the block tonight, eight of which went over the high estimate um, and it was a record for Tracy for, for a painting tonight her hurricane which she painted in 2007 went for 350,000 hammer above a high estimate of 180,000 
And it's really intriguing, isn't this? Because the wholesale has been set up. The listeners have just heard this interview that I did with Paola from Christie's in which she really, really emphasised this relationship between Tracy and George Michael. And that was very much the theme of the night, wasn't it? Because, for instance, Juicy was doing the... He was the auctioneer. He was saying, you know, it's, it's been Tracy's night. You know, it's a great night for Tracy. There's been a lot of press about Tracy's relationship with George and, and the story goes that, um, that she introduced him to the YBAs. Um, but it seems that Christie's has really sort of pit, pitted her at the nucleus of this collection. Um, in a sense, Sotheby's has sort of had, held the reign for some more gimmicky sales. They've done the, they had the Damien Hirst 2008 Beautiful Inside My Head Forever sale. They had the Bowie collection, uh, the Bono Red auctions. So this sort of really seems to be Christie's emulating Sotheby's relationship with Damien and putting Tracy sort of centre and, and to good effect to be fair to them I mean it seems to, to, they seem to pull it off tonight I mean it's really interesting that, that if you want the symbolic lot of the night was this love heart a neon piece by, by Tracy Emin which is a love heart with the words George loves Kenny in the middle so it was in, in a way in, it encapsulated in, in one work what Christie's were trying so hard to do, which was to promote this very personal engagement between the YBAs and George Michael. Yeah, that, that neon actually went for 280,000. There was sort of a bidding war between um, a woman in the room who I couldn't identify um, against Christian Albu, who, whose sale this is, the new uh, co-head of post-war here at Christie's. Um, but it was just shy of, the, of, her, of her record for a neon. But, I mean, it really did sum up the evening um, and was quite, you know, it was really, really well received. I think there were a number of George Michael fans in the, in the, in the, in, in the cell room who were cheering and clapping and really egging this, this work on. In, in stark contrast to Tracy is Damien Hurst. And I think it was, you know, if you are monitoring Hurst's prices at auction, then th- this confirms what we think is a, a bit of a trend that, that his works are actually getting very disappointing results at auction. Yeah, I mean, at the, the beginning of the sale, um, five of the six Damien Hurst works were given a last-minute third-party guarantee, which means that Christie's found, uh, effectively found someone who is willing to pay a minimum price, guarantee a price for the Hursts. Um, and that reflects the fact that they probably thought there wasn't going to be much bidding in, in the room or on the phones or online. So they secured buyers beforehand for five of the six lots, which is really telling. So really uh, a sale of two halves um, in that the two uh, most highly estimated works, two works by Damon Hurst, two formaldehydes estimated to go for between one and 1.5 million. They both went for around 750,000. And I think one of them went on a single bid, uh, most likely to the guarantor. Yes, it's, it's interesting this, isn't it? Because you noted this last week that there were some sales in London, contemporary sales, where um, some Damien Hurst work, one was bought in, is that right? And, and then others, again, had disappointing sales. So this is, this is as I say, a trend. Yes. Um, her, I mean, it's been quite widely reported that, that collectors have been making losses on Hurst work over the last couple of years. And last week's contemporary evening sales bore that out. Yet yeah, there was one work that was withdrawn here at Christie's of spot painting and one work that went unsold at Phillips the next night. And then I think a further spot painting, which, which went unsold in their day sale. So it's, it's not looking great for Damien's market right now. There was a very interesting comparison that we could make tonight because there was a work in this sale, as was mentioned in the interview with Paula earlier on, that was actually in that Sotheby's sale in 2008. What, what happened to that? Yeah, um, the, the work was, it was, it's a, 
Yes, it's a formaldehyde work. It's a bull's heart um, with dove wings on it with a dagger going through the middle of the heart. And that was uh, bought by George um, for 313000 at Sotheby's in 2008. A decade later, we're seeing that go for 260000 So that's a loss of uh, 50, around £50,000. I can't do the percentage in my head. <laughs> but um, it was offered with a much lower estimate than 10 years ago. It was offered um, tonight at 120 to 180000 and 10 years ago it was offered at 150 to 200,000 so that tells you something about where the, the auction house is pitching his market they're prepared to take a hit and indeed um, that work did take a hit on, on what it was bought for 10 years ago Now one of the things that we've been talking about is, it, is, there, is, there, this, is there this idea of a sort of George Michael premium that is, is there, are these works likely to fetch higher prices because of their previous owner so can, can you give any sense of whether that was in effect tonight? I think you can definitely say there was a George Michael premium in effect tonight. Um, there was a lot of bidding on the phones and online indeed. Um, there was a, be- a very active buyer in Belgium, one in Texas, one in Nevada. One wonders whether the Palms Casino Resort was, was bidding on the Hearst. Um, I think that that reflects that there was sort of uh, there was interest from people who might not be the usuals, the usual crowd um, here at Christie's. Um, and I think that was really reflected in, in, in the lead up to the sale, you know, that they had this, the, the sale room, the, the galleries have been open to the public and you've seen a real mix of people here at Christie's in the lead up to the sale. I was here on Wednesday afternoon, there were diehard fans here in, in George Michael, um, 25 Live t-shirts, you know, this is, this is it's breaking the mould for Christie's, I think a good thing because these, these things can be stuffy and, and the sale, room, sale rooms can be full of the same, same faces. There were some usual suspects. I think White Cube underbid on a number of works, but I think it was a real mix tonight. One of the things that was pointed out to me by somebody at Christie's, and I think this is actually quite an accurate point, is that you know we did. There were queues around the block to visit this exhibition, and I think actually it is one of the first public moments that people have had the chance to actually celebrate George Michael's life as opposed to mourn his death is that your impression when you came to visit the show yeah definitely I think there was a real sort of diehard contingent and it was and it was refreshing and there was a real there was a sort of a they, they were playing you know George Michael's music they were they were you know pumping out wham but there was still a subdued atmosphere in a sense there was a sort of sense of mourning but also celebration of this aspect of of this you know very public figure's life um, which has hitherto not been largely made public um some people might say that the collection won't be mourned it, it's not the most unique perhaps it, it was it was it was uh, put together really over a space that well the sale tonight was 95 percent bought between 2006 and 2008 i think around half were bought in 2007 so this is a collection that was put together very quickly um, some might say without much connoisseurship but you know the ybas they weren't the most sort of subtle of of, of people you know Fuck off and die, you slag is, a, is an excellent case in point. I don't know if we can say that on the podcast, <laughs> but that is the title of a work. Um, so, you know, it, it's, a, it's an in-your-face grouping and, and, it, and it did well. It did well tonight. Another thing which seems to me to be quite important about the fact that that neon work by Tracy sold at such a high price, the, the George Loves Kenny, is that to a certain extent, Kenny Goss's role in this collection seems to have been rather written out of the picture in this sale. It's the George Michael collection everywhere, but it was very much a partnership, this collection. Yes, indeed. Kenny was uh, an art dealer and a major influence in, in George Michael's collecting. Um, and it's interesting to see what's going to happen to this money. It's my understanding that it's going to 
George Michael's philanthropic work, but the charities, the exact charities, haven't been decided yet. They wanted to keep that quite flexible. So to sum up, tell us what the top line figures for this sale were. So the sale brought in a total of £9.3 million, um, and that's with, with fees against a high estimate of £8 million. So that's a great deal raised for charity and I think that's what we need to bear in mind. Annie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back talking to the artist Shazad Dawood after this. Who doesn't wonder at the artistry and skill that goes into great Chinese porcelain? But how many of us, especially in the West, appreciate the subtlety and symbolism of the designs? Nothing was ever accidental for Chinese artists and their patrons. The very rare pair of imperial quail and chrysanthemums bowls to be offered at Bonham's Chinese Works of Art sale in New York, for example, are replete with meaning. As Bruce McLaren, director of Bonham's Chinese Fine and Decorative Arts Department, explains, a pair of quail stands for peace and harmony. Chrysanthemums symbolise fortitude and longevity. Put them together and they convey the doubly propitious wish of may you live in peace. These remarkable bowls date from the reign of the art-loving Yongcheng Emperor and are numbered among the finest imperial porcelain of the year. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the 14th Sharjah Biennial is now open and consists of three discrete exhibitions devised by its three curators, Zoe Butt, Omar Khalif and Claire Tankons. It features around 80 artists and the overall title is Leaving the Echo Chamber. One of those artists is Shezad Dawood, who's showing a new virtual reality work at the Biennial. Shazad is just back from Sharjah and with me now. Shazad, you're just back from Sharjah having installed your work and it's an incredibly rich sounding work which has at its heart a virtual reality piece. Can you tell us more about it? Well, the VR sits within uh, two larger installations. I'm, I must say I'm not interested in VR in isolation. I like... Uh, where it becomes interesting for me is when you can ask this philosophical question of the threshold between the real and the virtual. And I think you need some sort of physical presence to play with what you then go into in the virtual world. So in terms of the viewer's experience, when they walk into the installation, what do they see? Well, you walk into the installation and there's two mirrored installations where the whole spaces are wallpapered using a fabric wallpaper with a digital terrazzo pattern. And you might say, what the hell is that about? Um, But terrazzo, interestingly, in the 1950s, they tried to develop cheap uh, or produce terrazzo cheaply in Pakistan for export back to Europe, and it failed. Um, And, you know, basically it failed because it wasn't quite good enough quality. But instead of becoming um, an export product, it became ubiquitous in Pakistan, not in the homes of the wealthy. It had a gradual decline, this newly made Pakistani terrazzo, where by the time it got into the 80s, when I was a kid in Karachi, the kind of seedy video arcades that popped up all had terrazzo floors. So that was my sort of childhood experience of this kind of, before ever getting to Italy, uh, of this sort of, you know, fancy flooring, but in, in the most sort of cheap back alley way. And, and does the terrazzo also then appear in the VR? It does. So the whole project is called Encroachments. And I suppose uh, I should give you a potted description of, of the title first. So encroachments is a term with very negative connotations in the Pakistani media in the last sort of 10 years. And basically it applies to ad hoc structures built by the poorest classes 
illegally onto public or private land. So literally in like two or three days, you can have a whole street go up where one didn't exist before, incorporating tea shops, mobile phone shops, even sometimes with living quarters above. And, you know, these things are heavily contested, often knocked down, politicians hate them, the media hates them. But, you know, I'm kind of very interested in them, not just in terms of Pakistan, but how we think about the commons, you know, globally, and the whole kind of questions that come up about public and private space these days, especially with private encroachment into supposed what appears to be public terrain everywhere. Uh, And I kind of wanted to use this um, in the Pakistani context to talk about what one might think of as a kind of idea of territory and sovereignty historically since the creation of Pakistan. And there's this interesting aspect, which is Richard Neutra's American embassy in Karachi, and that plays a role in it. What, What role does it play? Well, I'm interested in this sort of politics of space and interestingly i think a lot has been sort of said about the cia bankrolling abstract expressionism but less is known about the parallel uh, sort of work the u.s state department was doing so in the 50s the u.s statement state department launched the embassy building program which was conceived to send american modernist architects with visions of optimism and openness to all these newly created or newly independent third world nations as obviously a buffer against the encroachment of soviet communism aha uh-huh. so an encroachment of a different kind then but but how does it how does it appear in the work does it appear in literal form or are you playing with it somewhat well in one of the sequences once you're in vr you actually um, move from a colour world to a black and white world and you're in this kind of entirely black void apart from what starts to be a little white point of light in the, in the at the horizon and you slowly approach it and it morphs and warps and then resolves itself into Neutra's um, proposed embassy for Karachi and, you know, and then you glide through into the external courtyard which had a beautiful water feature back in the day And you're there in the courtyard faced with the American Centre, which was the kind of equivalent of the British Council in its day. I mean, I would go there to read American comic books as a kid. So it was, you know, a similar sort of cultural, you know, cultural propaganda vehicle for the language and and popular or or more high high polluting culture of of the nation kind of uh, that kind of had this, you know, had the centre or the council. And um, it's quite an, you know, I think it's one of my favourite scenes in the whole work because you're 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 in the courtyard of a virtual building in a three-dimensional virtual reconstruction of this space which had such sort of contested propaganda value. And then what I've done is, you know, you get those arts festivals where they projection map films onto buildings. I've done that within VR. So uh, about a year ago, I was out. I finally got permission after four years of trying to access the Neutra building and managed to film with 8mm and 16mm. So really, you know, analogue film, you know, that's sort of more looking backwards whereas vr is kind of considered you know sort of maybe you know ultra digital and so within this digital construct you've got analog film formats projecting views inside the embassy onto the exterior of the embassy and there's a beautiful sequence in the film where i got the caretaker who'd been there for about 20 years and was able to confirm a lot of my remote research i'd done from london and there's a beautiful sequence where he takes me through this endless corridor in the embassy to show me what i'd only read about which was this whole half floor of the embassy which contained 
the supercomputer, and obviously a supercomputer took up room after room in those days. It's probably no, you know, less powerful than my phone today. <laughs> but this supercomputer was, it, this whole half floor was secret because it was a secret CIA listening post during the Soviet-Afghan conflict, which again pulls in another parallel encroachment. You know, because interestingly, the video game arcades of the 80s in Pakistan arrived on the back of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 79 and the US-sponsored military coup in Pakistan in 81. And suddenly you had all these video games coming through, which I was playing as an innocent, naive, you know, kid. But later you sort of realise all these games had titles like Defender, Space Invaders. So it's the same sort of logic as US sci-fi films from the 50s in terms of kind of creating a certain kind of, you know, terror of the of the Soviet menace or the other, the alien other trying to in- encroach on your space. What, what, what sounds so interesting about the work is that it, it, it seems to me that it appeals to a sense that I've always detected in your work of this idea of challenging the idea of one, on the one hand, time and linear time and the way we think of time, but also this balance between a kind of um, collective consciousness or a global consciousness and then a very distinct autobiographical element. It's, do you start off with all those elements intact, as it were, or, or does your research just take you in different directions and the thing coalesces much more organically? I think a bit of both. You know, there's there's a sort of conscious and a more organic part of the process. But yes, I mean, you've, you've beautifully encapsulated, you know, the sort of three different kind of directions that I find a subject needs to pull me in for it to be relevant to really get my teeth into and create an exhibition or a body of work around. You you also work with sound a great deal, don't you? And and this this particular work has a very distinctive soundtrack. Can you tell us more about it? Well, interestingly, thinking about you know, I love this idea where you know just the title of encroachment sort of echoes across in different ways across time and you know across different potted histories. And you know, something I've become very interested in is this you know largely forgotten niche music scene uh, from Pakistan in the late 60s and early 70s, where you had all these bands um, kind of mixing classical Indian ragas with the production values of both Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and Phil Spector in terms of his sort of wall of sound recording techniques. And, you know, when I stumbled on, you know, on this sort of little scene, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is so unexpected and yet so beautiful. And then as I did more digging and I've spoken to a number of band members from the period, what became even more beautiful in that little history was a kind of more polyglot kind of, you know, vision of a Pakistan that could have been because most of the bands, the members were Muslim and Christian musicians who lived side by side in a kind of Karachi before I was born that actually was less discriminatory. So uh, when you are composing the installation element and the VR element, how much are they being composed in a kind of in parallel and how much does one come before the other? Absolutely in parallel. They have to speak to each other and I'm really interested in what I call a sort of parallax but you know where one sort of mirrors the other darkly, you know, for want of a better expression. And so, for example, you have this terrazzo wallpaper that's black on one side and white on the other. And actually, at the end of the embassy sequence in the VR, the whole thing turns to those digital terrazzo patterns. So you actually are directly mirroring the installation you're in physically and virtually. And then at other moments, you know, as you're in the embassy, there's a 
there's a tapestry work in a frame, which is a sort of you know printed and woven tapestry work, which has an image of uh, a section of the embassy with the pool and the American centre, with overlaid with the terrazzo flooring that's on the interior of the embassy. So it's these beautiful little moments that connect the virtual and the real. And in some ways, what I like to do is kind of pull the rug out from under under the viewer, um, just because at moments the installation is more abstract than what you see in the virtual reality. And, you know, that's, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you said about my interest in time. And, you know, you know, you probably know that I've worked with experimental film for, you know, 15 years or more. And the shift into VR was really a, cu- a couple of good friends of mine who were sort of maverick, you know, coders and developers who'd been involved in music scenes and all sorts of other things. You know, we'd cross paths various ways in our histories. And they were like, you need to be working with VR. You know, everything you you write and talk about, about, you know, immersive experiential filmmaking and about trying to make the viewer an active rather than pa- uh, passive participant is possible through this technology. And, you know, it took me a while of sitting on the fence of really experimenting with it before suddenly, you know, with the first work I did in 2016 called Kalimpong, which was another sort of similar niche history, but that also speaks to a kind of global Cold War kind of narrative. You know, it was like, I think the technology had got where I wanted it to be. And also I found the sort of subject that this layered history and what I'd always tried to do in my films, this idea that you could move through time and space was suddenly like, okay, I can enact this in a way that's not just, you know, jumping on the bandwagon of a new technology as a gimmick or a more superficial engagement. And tell me about the idea of working in the context of a biennial, because to what extent did the curate, there are three curators, to what extent was the concept of the biennial explained to you beforehand? To what extent did you bear that in mind when you were making the work and all that kind of stuff? Well, I think it's sort of always 50-50. You know, um, I worked with Omar of the three curators and he'd approached me. He'd heard about this work I was developing around Pakistan, uh, which was actually in a way one of the more personal bodies of research um, that I've ever done. Um, and he kind of, you know, was very interested in including it, you know, this idea of leaving the echo chamber that was the sort of larger title of the whole biennial, and then each curator had their own title just to keep everyone on their toes. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and I was quite interested in that idea of leaving the echo chamber because a lot of my work is about kind of mining the past to understand the present and the future. So, you know, how do we leave the echo chamber and understand all these kind of forgotten histories that might shed light on on different kind of utopian possibilities, uh, ways in which history could have gone down a different fork. You know, I think it enriches our ability to kind of think differently into the present. And what about the sort of whole, uh, the kind of uh, audience for the work in Sharjah? Because, you know, we hear about an international art world that just goes wherever the wherever the biennials go, wherever the fairs go. Did you, does it feel like a different audience in Sharjah? Did you... Did you did you get that sense of a sort of a, a global peripatetic uh, force that just travels from place to place, or was there is there a feel of its own? Well, I think you know wherever you go, if a biennial's of a certain kind of status or stature, you know you have um, the great and the good of the international art world, major museum directors, curators, arts writers, all turning up to see what this year's offering you know has in store. Um, but then it's. I'm always interested to kind of take take a step back and think about how it relates to context. You know, so my project in Venice a couple of years ago was really site specific and spent, you know, two years researching on the ground. That's just me, you know. Um, And for Sharjah, there's quite a direct relation. My grandfather was based 
in the UAE when it was far less developed. And, you know, there's a there's a huge community of uh, Pakistani and Indian expat workers, often of the lower classes, fulfilling, you know, the more menial jobs. But interestingly, in Sharjah, what I think is really interesting in the way they capacity build is they really kind of work with a lot of, you know, these workers, but train them up to be skilled technicians. I mean, you know, this might surprise, you know, your audience, but it was one of the best tech, technical and production teams I've ever had at a biennial or exhibition. You know, they were so good. And, you know, I must confess, I got a bit of extra help because I can speak in Urdu and Hindi to them. Right. So there was a kind of, you know, you know, homeboy kind of <laughs> kind of feeling. And, you know, I, you know, I won one of the jury prizes at the biennial and it was really like a victory for the home team. I had a lot of the kind of people, uh, the Pakistani kind of tech and production team who kind of helped me come up to me at the award ceremony and go, you know, fist and fist punch. And it was just like, and that was quite lovely because it was, you know, you know, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say I wasn't consciously thinking of this piece for Sharjah because of it has a constituent audience who know the histories I'm talking to. And it opens it up to them as well as to an international audience coming in. And what about the future? Because I know that, you, you know, you, your Leviathan this is this vast project that you're talking about being a 10-part series. You're, you're up to part five. Do you have a sort of goal in mind as to when this 10-part series will be complete? Hoping by 2021. I mean, you know, it's this crazy schedule I find myself in. Like, I got back from Sharjah Sunday night, and then this morning I'm in major production meetings about the rest of the Leviathan film cycle um, and the different countries I want to shoot it in, because, you know, I'm I'm a real global globalist, I guess. You know, I, I, I'm quite, I'm you know, which... Uh, Maybe sets me against nationalist ideologues, but... Uh, That's not a bad thing. <laughs> no, I think, you know, I think we're really overdue for recognising the fact that it's one ecosystem and one body, maybe with different expressions. Uh, you know, so I don't want to sort of, un- you know, I don't believe in people who want to simple universalising, but I think there's ways to speak to different audiences and connect to people in different ways. And uh, you have exhibitions coming up beyond Sharjah, don't you? Yes, I've got a big solo at Blue Coat in Liverpool uh, opening in July, which will be around the Leviathan project, which where we'll be showing the first five episodes of the Leviathan film cycle and the first part of the of an intended Leviathan VR trilogy. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. You can see Shezad Dawood's encroachments in the Sharjah Biennial until the 10th of June. And that's it for this week. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes as it helps others to find us. You can follow us and tell us what you think on Twitter at Tan Audio. And you can find the art newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, of course. If you'd like to read more from the art newspaper, please subscribe to our free daily newsletter. It contains a roundup of the stories published on our website, previews of exhibition openings and live reports from the leading auctions, art fairs and biennials. You can subscribe at theartnewspaper.com and look for the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. We'll see you next week. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>